0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily. Hello. We are going to bring you today two interviews that are directly related to what's going on in the country right now. Mine is with Brandy Collins-Dexter of the civil rights group Color of Change, and she's going to talk to us about what's going on with Facebook in the midst of all of this. And the problem with the disinformation and hate speech that is circulated by Mark Zuckerberg's company. And you, Emily Jane Fox, are bringing us who today?
1: I had a conversation with Maya Wiley, who is a former prosecutor in the Southern District of New York Civil Division. She is an legal analyst with NBC News and MSNBC and a professor at the New School, someone who has advised the mayor of New York City. Uh, She is a voice that I always want to hear from in any kind of legal situation, particularly this week. uh, We got to break down what the charges against the four Minneapolis police officers actually mean, what is required, and uh, it was a really illuminating conversation about the facts on the ground in a very practical way, what we need to know, um, what issues could come up as this... Uh, goes into uh, trial mode and uh, what we need to do to reform policing in this country. I think that you and I have been trying to do a lot of listening this week. And so let's just get right to the listening now and and to these useful, informative interviews. And here we go. Okay, we are... Just the luckiest today to have Maya Wiley with us. Maya, you know I am president of your fan club. uh, But in case anyone who's listening has not seen her as a legal analyst on MSNBC and NBC News, which feels impossible... I will introduce Maya as a former prosecutor in the SDNY Civil Division who's had a career in civil rights laws. She was a former advisor to New York City's mayor and a former board chair of the city's civilian civilian complaint review board and a professor at the new school. Maya's voice is the voice I wanted to hear today. So welcome, Maya, and thank you for giving us your time here. I know how sleepless and busy this week has been for you.
2: Well thank you Emily I'm a big fan of your work as well and so it's an honor to speak with you and it was just
1: too hard to say no Ugh I I love you for that and I love that Let's just play a little bit of catch up. Uh, On Wednesday, the former Minneapolis police officer who pressed his knee into George Floyd's neck was charged with a new, more serious count of second degree murder. And the three other officers on the scene during his killing were charged with aiding and abetting second degree murder. I'm going to start by asking you, Maya, with just a basic set of questions to lay out for us. Can you walk me through the difference between second degree and third degree murder in Minneapolis and what's aiding and abetting?
2: Yeah, those are really good questions because legalese it's like a foreign language for yeah. everyone. <laughs> and we go to law school to learn that language.
0: I'm um, so grateful so for that. The
2: so short, the short answer is and, and I, I focus uh, on the sentencing side because I think it's so important for the public to understand. The first critical difference is second degree murder, uh, this officer is facing up to 40 years in prison. Under third degree murder, he would be facing up to 25 years in prison. So that's, mm. that already tells you that it is viewed as a much more significant crime, even though they both bear the word murder be considered uh, and to be charged with second degree murder. The legal difference, the legal difference, just to put it in plain terms, is the difference between I was, I was, I didn't walk in planning to kill this person, but in the process of my doing wrong, in this case, this excessive force my intent became to kill and Mm -hmm. and i and i don't mean intent like i said to myself you're gonna die and i'm gonna make sure you die but it's that 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 i uh my actions speak intent um the the risk that i create creates enough of an intent and Mm -hmm. the difference with third degree murder is more like heat of the moment Um, uh, and accidental. So so it carries a little bit more, and again, I'm not using legal terms, because the truth is, it's more like uh, the, the one police officer who was successfully convicted of um, third degree murder, actually of second degree murder in Minneapolis, for example, did shoot and kill a woman who called the police saying that, Um, She had heard screams. Mm. He was scared and shot into her home and killed her. Now, that was second degree murder. But third degree murder would more be like, um, you know, you carried a gun, you got into a fight with someone, uh, you started beating them, you intended to beat them, um, but, but, but they fell and hit their head and died. Right. So it, it, it's really a difference of degree. Uh, it, it's, and, and the way that prosecutors try to game out which they charge is very much around the facts and the circumstances because no one tells you what they're thinking. Sure. Uh, and in some cases, intent in law is not about what you think consciously. It's about what your, that your actions were intended. And, and here the intent is this officer kept his knee on George Floyd's neck and they held him down because the other two officers also helped restrain for some period of time despite his cries but also after one of the officers checks for a pulse and says there's no pulse this officer keeps his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for more than two minutes longer that if you play a timer and you see how long it takes for two minutes to pass after someone's told you that uh, the person is not breathing. That's intent. And the fact that those other to your question about aiding and abetting, aiding and abetting means you counsel, advise or otherwise support the crime. In this case, it's unintentional murder, meaning they the underlying felony here was the assault, the, the, the excessive force, the aggravated assault. Um, and it's there and they are deemed by the facts to have supported this murder by the fact that they physically participated in holding him down, that they watched and didn't intervene and stop that 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 becomes a, a form of agreement, a form of complicity. And remember, it was one of the other officers who's now charged with aiding and abetting that felt for that pulse and didn't feel it. Not mm. one of those three officers said, wait a minute. And one of them, Officer Lane, actually made clear that they were concerned that this was putting him in harm's way, because he said on two occasions, should we turn him? Should we turn him? And when Officer Chauvin says no, they don't question it. They go along with it. So that's aiding and abetting. That is, we support you. We're in this. We're with you.
1: And they face up Minnesota. to 40 years in prison as well for that crime. Is that right? That's
2: exactly right. In in Minnesota, and, and different state laws are different, so um, you have to look at the law of the state. But in, in Minnesota, aiding and abetting means you are guilty to the same extent as the person
1: you help. Wow. the The way you just laid out how intent could be proved in a court of law is so important here, because as Keith Ellison, who's the attorney general in Minnesota, said in his press conference on Wednesday, the upgraded and additional charges were not a result of public pressure, but they were a result of evidence that they have in their possession, evidence, some of which we have seen, some of which I would imagine we have not seen. But there is such an uphill battle in court once these charges are brought against police officers what kind of evidence would you need in order to prove these charges against these police officers?
2: Well, Emily, you know, I think one of the things we have to say up front here is that one of the reasons it's hard is because grand juries uh, and, 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 a, and a jury of the officers peers find it very difficult to punish officers. So oftentimes it's less about the evidence uh, that and more about not believing your lying eyes. So I say that because in this case, I think the evidence is very strong. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't defenses. That doesn't mean we won't hear defenses. But oftentimes the defenses become, uh, it's my word against the person or uh, the witnesses who are saying I did wrong. Juries like to believe police. They don't like to believe that police don't tell the truth. We don't like to believe that police engage in misconduct. And in fact, many people have positive interactions with police. Um, and that's why we see polls that say, for instance, 74% of Americans believe that police don't lie. Mm. Uh, if, if anyone who's had experience with police who do lie would be shocked <laughs> by that. Um, but, but that's the fact because if you sure. haven't experienced it, you don't believe it. So you, You believe the credibility of the officers. The the issue here is that um, there is videotape. And that videotape and that time count and, and the fact that you have bystanders standing around saying, you're killing him. And we have that fact that the district attorney knew when the first complaint was filed and we didn't see that fact in the complaint. But Keith Ellison, the attorney general, puts that fact in the new complaint is that we hear George Floyd himself say, you're killing me. Mm. And, 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 and those kinds of things are the evidence because they don't stop, because they make no effort to intervene or shift his position or call for medical help or anything that would be evidence that they did not intend to put him in this position that cost him his life and did not care that it cost him his life. That, that really is the point here. And while we will see a defense, we will hear, you know, as we've heard from people who knew him, that he was a gentle giant. Mm. What we will hear is no, he was a big, scary black man. Right. We will, we will hear well, and he was sick. He didn't die because we did wrong. He died because he was sick. Right. Uh, and that is why the family got its own autopsy report as it started to be concerned about what it was hearing uh, in the medical examiner's report. Both conclude homicide. Homicide legally is not guilt of murder, but it's certainly your actions resulted in the killing. Sure. And they both conclude that, but they conclude it differently. And I think we will see the defense use that uh, as as a way to try to undermine the arguments uh, of their guilt. One thing that's so important about the aiding and abetting, Emily, that is that it does create the possibility that an officer or officers will decide to cooperate to save themselves, and that will greatly strengthen the case.
1: So, So one of the three officers charged with aiding and abetting could strike a deal with prosecutors that would potentially lessen their sentence or punishment or conviction in order to help out in, in the case uh, for second degree murder.
2: That's right. Now prosecutors would make the decision about whether that was valuable to them or whether they didn't need it. And so they, you know, what, how prosecutors will decide to proceed, we don't know. It just, it is a possibility.
1: Sure. I think that we just got a little bit of a preview of it and all the hairs on my body stood up when I started hearing you talk about it. But what would you say? I know you don't have have all the evidence and the time that they will take uh, bringing bringing this case to trial, but what would you say to the jury on the first day of arguments here? I'm sorry for my my puppy barking in the background. Oh. She's very curious to hear what you have I'll to say. Never protest well. for puppies. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right so um, so what what yeah. is the kind of stuff that we would would hear you say to a jury in the opening day? of this trial when it comes to me?
2: You know, what, what I would say is that um, the job of the police department is to protect public safety. And when police go against our laws and go against their training and ignore their, their better angels and take someone's life, that blue uniform cannot be a shield from justice. George Floyd was on the ground, he was handcuffed, he was crying out for his life. And these officers callously and cruelly and inhumanely and intentionally pressed the life out of his body. And that we must punish.
1: That just made me take a breath it's incredibly powerful and so difficult to hear and i i know that there is so much emotion stirred up just thinking about the time and thinking about the force and as you just said uh using the the blue uniform as a shield has been something that i think the entire country is thinking about and talking about and learning about uh two of the four police officers who have charges brought against them, have been uh, officers who have a history of complaints against them for excessive force and a number of different things. There are systems and laws in place in this country that protect officers, and the systems and laws have made it extremely difficult for new police chiefs who do come into places like Minneapolis who want to reform their forces. It's very difficult for them to affect change because of police unions, because of uh, police officers having the ability to self-report or report on one another because of civilian boards that don't actually do what they're supposed to do because of the, the constraints on bringing these criminal charges and the defenses that they're able to bring when these criminal charges are Brought um, and as you as you talked about about grand juries not wanting to believe the worst in their police officers, I'm wondering what you think is is a way to reform the system both on a local and state level on a federal level. What do we have to do in order for those complaints against officers to matter to get people who have had a history of seventeen offenses? off of street policing. What what is it going to take to get us out of the system and laws that we are currently in?
2: Thank you for that important question and and for flagging, Emily, what is so central to the protesting that we are seeing in the streets in our in our communities all across the country. It's that lots of citizens of this country, residents of our of our cities of our cities have experienced police misconduct, even if they're not killed, they've experienced police conduct, misconduct, and that that for far too long has been hidden inside police departments, meaning one of the things that we need to do and one of the things we need to change is the ability for police departments to
1: hide the complaints
2: and to hide Whether or not they respond effectively to those complaints. Mm. That is something that does not exist in many states in this country. Even here in New York State, the state where Eric Garner became the, um, the first person whose death produced the I can't breathe hashtag that we have devastatingly resuscitated in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Is a state in which the state uh, and the courts have interpreted the law to say that police departments uh, and other agencies of government cannot reveal that complaints existed and, and what their outcomes were for law enforcement. Mm. If you can hide whether or not you are adequate, adequately responding to complaints, how many you get, what officers have gotten how many and how that's been handled. You're essentially not accountable to the public that you serve in ways that every other public servant wouldn't even consider um, something that they could hide from. You know, we expect to be able to hold our public officials accountable and hold those who serve us accountable. So that is one. Uh, The second, you know, we were already hearing about it is, we can more forcefully pass laws that ban the bad behavior. So Representative Hakeem Jeffries, ever since Eric Garner's death, has a bill that's been sitting in Congress to ban these chokeholds that cut off the breathing uh, of people coming into contact with the police. That's something that should be happening at the federal level, uh, but it can also happen at state and local level. I think the other thing that is so critically important that needs to be part of our solution is culture change within police departments. Mm. You you said it so rightly. We do have police chiefs um, in some of our departments who are willing to do the right thing. We have some police chiefs who won't, and they should be fired, frankly. Um, But but there are many police chiefs that that care deeply about uh, law-abiding police officers as well as law-abiding citizens. Right. But one of the things that that requires is that we shift the vision of what policing is. You know, we have seen a 70% drop in crime precipitously over the last 30 years. And at the same time, we have invested in militarizing and growing police forces. In New York City, just to give you an example, in the, in, in the early 1990s, we, we might have had 2,200 deaths, murders in this city. We've been below 400 murders for the past eight years. Where's our peace dividend? Mm. Where is the shift that says, you know what? The role of police now is not the role of police in the 1970s. The role of police now is to identify hot spots. Help identify underlying problems and causes and partner and bring that information both to law enforcement in terms of how to better police the hotspots, not the entire community, but also how to shift so that it's information sharing for the parts of government that should come in with social services, Mm. for the parts of government that should come in with the solutions to the causes of, of the initial problems. And we even have models of violence prevention that have data behind them, where we have violent felons, people who have killed or hurt other people, who come out of prison. They're trusted and respected in their communities because they come from those communities, and they have credibility on mediating and stopping violence before it happens. There's a track record here, there's data. It's called Cure Violence. And models in, I think, 20 cities in this country. Why it's not both national policy and why it's not a primary investment when the only reason police officers or our residents are in harm's way is because we're not addressing what is underlying the problem. It will make police officers safer, probably enjoy their jobs more Mm. and feel more effective at them. It will also change their relationships to community. But that means they have to police differently. They have to see their role differently. And they have to understand that we have had decades of a shifting scenario in this country that's a good one. Where's our peace dividend?
1: Mm. That is so powerful and and such an an actionable way to think about change. And so many places to remind us that uh, if we vote in November... These are things that we can talk to new representatives about, or representatives who we want to be in office again if we vote to reelect them. Uh, something that you said struck me that this is not the police force that we had in 1970, but we're also not living in the world that we were living in in 1970, and there have been so many advancements. And in particular this past week, I've been thinking about the cell phone video has to be probably the most influential invention that I could think of in modern times, particularly when it comes to policing. But not every incident is going to be caught on cell phone video. God willing, more will be because we've seen what would happen when when they are. But that's not uh, likely, that is not possible. And so I, I'm curious what you think has to happen and what will happen so that we have confidence in our police force when the eyes of the world are not watching. I think
2: that's why we need transparency in what happens with complaints and discipline. You can't believe that, uh, that people who have experienced abuse or seen and heard far too many stories of, of, of abuse that has gone unpunished And in many instances, by the way, unreported because people are afraid to report it, especially when it's beat cops, who know where they live, know where they go to work, know how to find them. I've heard this report from residents time and time again. Whether it's true or not, the fact is that many people believe they will be punished by the police for complaining. And so until we have transparency, until the police departments invite the light of day into not just their practices, but where and how they see their problems, and whether or not they are accountable to correcting them. We won't have trust, but it's also why I emphasize problem-solving policing. Uh, you know, the policing that should be our policing in a 21st century, because I think as police officers get supported to play a constructive and crime prevention role in communities um, and less of um, a a role that sees the community as potentially dangerous to them, that we will not change this problem. Mm. For Black people in this country, I have to say the problem has been that Black people are not believed when they say that there's abuse, which is why the video has been so necessary. But even with video, we have seen juries acquit. Remember Rodney King, that video was plain, it was clear. And we had a jury that said, we don't care. And so we, we have to shift the culture of the police department. But one of the things that's so hopeful to me is we have seen police who will lead, we have seen police who have admitted that there needs to be change, who have who we know that there are police who embrace change, but we're also seeing the American public have to confront the fact that it has for far too long seen Black people, seen Latinos, seen Native Americans if they live in communities with, with, with a high Native American population as people who are scary and dangerous rather than people who are mothers and fathers, Mm. rather than people who are looking for a job that helps them pay the rent just like everybody else. And sometimes people who have not been able to find one and become more desperate, but that those are solvable problems. It's not the color of our skin. It is absolutely the question of whether society will invest in true opportunity. And if we can shift the budgets, if we can shift the mindset uh, it's both about banning the bad behavior but incentivizing the
1: good. I love ending with you on a note to be hopeful about. It feels particularly important on this very heavy week, and I feel like I have gotten from you what I knew I would get from you. It's it's that sense of hope, the sense of deeper understanding, and the sense of what we all need to do in order to make this country what we want it to be, and, and particularly in our support of the Black community. Maya, thank you so much for taking the time to to explain all of that to us.
2: Thank you for caring so deeply, Emily, and, and for allowing it.
0: Brandi Collins-Dexter, welcome to Inside the Hive. Um, I want to briefly introduce you here. You are from uh, the Color—you're the Senior Campaign Director at Color of Change— it's a civil rights group, as far as I understand, the biggest online civil rights group in the country, and you specialize in media, democracy, and economic justice, and I just want to point out, very interesting, that you were part of a successful campaign, I guess I could call it a pressure campaign, uh, from Color of Change to remove Bill O'Reilly from the air, <laughs> which yeah. is, a, uh, is an interesting um, uh, kind of a feather in your cap. Um there's a lot of chaos going on right now, but in the middle of all of this um, protest and and strife in the country, there have been some interesting shifts in the way social media companies are addressing what's happening. Last week, we saw Twitter began to flag Donald Trump's um, tweets and specifically ones about, um, you know, vote by mail is – quote-unquote, going to be, you know, automatically mean a rigged election. Mm -hmm. uh, Saying that, um, you know, the protesters should be shot, right? And basically allowed to spread hate speech, misinformation, outright lies. And now that's changing at least a little bit on the margins there. And then we turn, of course, to Facebook (laughs) and what's going on with them and how they are addressing the circulation of information. I mean, people are trapped at home nowadays nowadays. Their only access to what's going on in many cases are Facebook, Twitter, social media, right? That's where a lot of people are getting what they know. Last week, uh, the head of your organization, Rashad Robinson, uh, was a part of a conference call with Mark Zuckerberg to address some of this. Can you tell us uh, what happened in that conversation? What was the kind of um, origin of it and what was discussed and what was the outcome?
3: Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, just to, to go back a little bit before I go to the meeting. So um, Color of Change has been, and, and the organizations that were at the table, have been calling on Facebook for quite some time to really look at um, how its policies and practices are negatively impacting Black people, communities of color, marginalized communities. And so um, we've been at the table with Mark and Cheryl before. We called for um, a civil rights audit for quite quite some time. Um, at first, they stalled on it. It actually didn't pick up gear until um, it, it didn't shift into um, high gear until Senator Booker mentioned it during the Zuckerberg hearings. And even then, it didn't move forward Um until we hit this moment where the new york times released an article that talked about the ways in which uh facebook was denying and deflecting all of the issues on their platform and we were named color of change as one of the groups that they had hired um, a firm to spread disinformation about in the media and when we went to the table with them and we met with cheryl and mark like you know i think at two years ago at this point we made the demand hey You know, there's so much about this platform that you're responsible for that you need to get right, and so this meeting um, that happened more recently was was part of a long attempt to really negotiate with Facebook on um, how they're dealing with hate speech, on how they're dealing with disinformation, on how they're dealing with voter suppression, on how they're dealing with, um, you know, census and ensuring that people are getting accurate information about that. And uh, we've pushed them to like release information and and release policies and clarify policies. And they have put some new policies in place to deal with that. But the problem is when it comes to the president, those um, policies don't apply. And so this meeting, um, and and what was made very clear uh, to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg in the meeting, is that their unwillingness to, um, you know, to take down content that's coming from like the largest personality on social media, it means that all the time you spend trying to deal with disinformation, trying to deal with voter suppression, it's for naught because when the president gets to like immediately beam out that disinformation and not be censored on it, it doesn't matter what you do with the smaller sites. And so that was a part of, or or sorry, smaller bad actors. And so that was that conversation, making it really clear that um, Mark Zuckerberg has been a disappointment in how he's addressed these issues. Um, They framed it as bipartisan when civil rights, right to vote and right to have like Um, access to accurate information is not a partisan issue. It's an issue that impacts all of us. And um, it really, they were urging him to like really step up to the plate and do better.
0: Right. And it was uh, interesting that Zuckerberg himself, after the, um, you know, comments about uh, shooting protesters, he actually called Donald Trump before making that decision. Um, You know, and there is this sense that he is, um you know uh, beholden uh, to the influence uh of the government in power right now because uh for financial reasons um well, one thing you said i want to go back to was that a couple of years ago it was revealed that facebook had hired a pr firm in washington uh definer it was called mm-hmm. um to kind of uh, disseminate, you know, information to discredit uh, color of change. Can you tell us a little bit about what what had happened in that incident?
3: Yeah, and and just to speak to your other point um, around the financial ties, I think it's it's, it's financial ties, and it's also um, when you look at the people in Facebook's orbit, like you see that one of the um, prominent members of their board is Peter Thiel, who's a very close ally to the Trump administration, has used Palantir, um, his data mining company uh, that CIA funded to work very closely with the government. Um, his top right, one of their top people in Facebook, Joel Kaplan, um, was actually initially vetted for um, the Trump cabinet. He played a very critical role in not just getting um, Kavanaugh onto the U.S. Supreme Court, but actually even getting his nomination put up in the first place. And so all around him, there are decision makers who have a vet- Interest in um, preserving um, the president more than the sanctity of democracy in terms of um, the definers issue. And so, again, we had we first came to Facebook um, because we had organizers on the ground in Stone Mountain, Georgia, in Sacramento, California, and other places. Black Lives Matter's protesters um, who were being doxxed in closed Facebook groups. Uh, and, and mind you, this was when uh, President Obama was still in office, so this is before. Trump and the whole conversation about like white nationalist groups. Um, but in these closed groups, they were docking, doxing um, these black activists and people were showing up to their places of work and to their home where their families were with guns. And we went to Facebook and we asked them to, um, you know, change their policy to take content down to do a better job of, of preventing this kind of thing. And they stalled for a really long time. And so we kept going to the to the table, trying to negotiate with them in good faith um, while also actively public campaigning against them. Um, Joel Kaplan, who I actually referenced, was one of the people that we we sent a letter to around uh, calling for the civil rights audit. And he sent us um, a pretty like nasty letter back saying he wasn't going to do that. Well, cut to the New York Times article, we find out with the rest of the world that while we were at the negotiating table with Facebook, um, you know Joel Kaplan and his team had hired on this firm whose job it was to... to publicly discredit any um, groups that were going after them. So groups like Open Market Institute, and then we were named as well. Um, They actually used um, some anti-Semitic tropes about us being like, you know, the puppet of George Soros, even though at that time, we weren't even one of, that wasn't even one of our top 10 funders, but really like sort of relied on that. And that went into like right-wing outlets, and we actually started getting a lot of death threats.
0: Right. I read about this, and and I think uh, Rashad Robinson mentioned that, you know, Being approached by some kind of uh, shifty people on the street, Um, and and, you know, being rightfully (laughs) worried about that, and and so the the point is, there's the consequences to them uh, not only not addressing it, but actively working to not have to address it. And um, you know, tell me though, give some examples if you can. Maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast may not themselves have come into direct contact with some of the stuff that is circulating on Facebook that you're talking about and that you would like to see uh, more um, attention paid to uh, by Facebook in particular. So what, what, what's, give me some examples of things that, um, that you're finding, uh, on Facebook.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, part of Part of what's been interesting about this conversation is, is that oftentimes uh, Facebook tries to hide behind this idea that, well, we're preserving free speech um, and, you know, putting to the side that actually free speech is around, you know, protection from government, not and corporations every day make choices, which is why we don't have a lot of ISIS Facebook pages, um, right. you know, It's just what we're talking about specifically is like violent speech. So even color change went out to our, our members. We have millions of members and we asked them what have been your experiences on Facebook and some of the stories that we got back, we talked about uh, one woman who came back from, from the women's March and um, was receiving death threats directly through her Facebook messages from a, a guy that was looking up women within a 30 mile radius of him and sending um, Deaf threats to them for, for, for posting about going to the Women's March. Um, we've seen, um, uh- Islamophobic or anti-Muslim hate groups operating and encouraging their members to show up to mosques with guns. Um, we've seen like in Border Patrol and um, police closed Facebook groups, a lot of white nationalist content, um, crude jokes and images and threats um, to AOC and her along with um, AOC, Maxine Waters um, and, you know, the squad, quote unquote, as they call them, receive. Uh, like the most death threats of of pretty much anyone in Congress and uh, a lot of information about them and encouragement to incite violence uh, we're seeing in all of these different groups flying around. And that's not even to mention um, the groups that mimic black uh, organizer groups that are expressly trying to, uh, you know, uh, cultivate voter depression um, and voter disengagement.
0: Right. And right now in the middle of all of this Protests. We've already seen reports of you know kind of uh, groups that are attempting to um, inflame more chaos. Who mm-hmm. are bad actors, and of course, a lot of them have um, big online presences or presences in in social media. Um, have you guys been monitoring that during all of this? You know, in the last week, um, you know, as as Facebook. In particular been um, you know Trump was the number one uh, and most obvious mm-hmm. uh, kind of target of all of this but like um, are there other uh, how what's been happening on Facebook during this and and is are there other things that we should be aware of and keeping our eye on in terms of you know uh, civil rights um, engagement
3: Yeah. And also, I I just want to mention one quick thing, too, you know, because we have we have talked about Trump and disinformation and and some of the things that he said more recently to me, one of one of the worst has been his disinformation around COVID-19 and what treatments work and what don't. Um, I know at one point he was like urging people to go get lupus medicine. My sister actually has really severe lupus and so and, and couldn't get her medicine for a while because of like one one post on Facebook or one tweet on Twitter immediately caused a run on that medication. So it's like, it's, it's not just like the vile hate speech, but it's like this like undercurrent of, of, of false information that then have direct harm. To lives and so, in terms of, um, you know, some of the things that we're seeing right now, a lot of disinformation around COVID-19 in the early days. Um, there were a lot of things that were said that that Black people were not susceptible to um, COVID-19 because of melanin, because of a number of other things. And as wow. we're seeing now, that spread of that and that, uh, you know, any slowness to crack down on that had direct um, implications for what we're seeing now in terms of, you know, disproportionately high numbers amongst other things. That's one thing we've seen groups again, imitating, um, we've been tracking groups that have been imitating BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter, imitating um, Antifa that are not authentic actors, that are um, setting up accounts and then actively encouraging violence in the streets and then having that be falsely attributed to um, those groups. And so there's a lot of that happening right now. Um, There's a lot of Uh, you know, false information around who's even involved in protests. We've seen a couple of incidences where um, pamphlets were circulated online that said this protest was being sponsored by BLM or the NAACP. Um, And then those groups would come out and say, actually, we aren't, you know, part of this. And so there's a lot of things that around this combination of, of spreading false information, cultivating hysteria, and then being able to like sort of frame up or point the smoking gun at actors who actually um, aren't the ones that should be held accountable. And of course, that's in addition to the continued white nationalism um, that we see running rampant. And actually, a recent data shows that like, um, recruitment is going up for white nationalist groups. And that Facebook is a very potent place um, for that level of recruitment.
0: Wow. Now, I mean, it it all makes perfect sense because if Facebook is not going to, you know, if their position is that we're just a communications device and we're not going to monitor any of this stuff. But you said that they do have policies in place, right? But they're just not implementing them. I mean, if you went to Facebook and said, hey, look, here's a hate group who's, you know, spreading disinformation, what do they say?
3: So, you know, as as I mentioned, we we have been pushing on this for a while and we actually work with a group called uh, Change the Terms, which is a coalition of several civil rights groups that came to the table and said, how can we develop meaning, meaningful policy for Silicon Valley? How can we actually be clear on what we're talking about when we're talking about hate speech? We're not talking about like... I don't like this person, or what we're talking about calls to violence. And so um, through that process of negotiation and the civil rights audit, we did get Facebook to put in place a policy, which they did use to take several accounts um, off of their site. However, again, part of what we're seeing, whether it's with Trump or other groups, is that there's these sort of special. A- Uh, You know, exemptions. And it just so happens that the people that get the special exemptions are the people that are actually the fastest vehicles for harmful information. So, um, you know, it's one thing to take down this person who's like saying um, violent things to 100 people but what does that matter if you won't take down um you know i'm not sure if, if david duke still has a facebook account but if you're not taking down a you know white uh nationalist who has a more larger speaker box or if you aren't censoring um trump and so that's part of the like n- the, the sort of like not looking at that we've also seen recently that they've kind of said oh because of covid 19 we've had to um it, we don't have enough content moderators to really deal with this issue. Um, first of all, I have questions around that because I don't know how a tech company <laughs> is not capable yeah. of getting people you know, set up to do that work. But even putting that to the side, um, basically what that means is in the highest crisis point where people are most scared, most vulnerable, and predators are most on the loose, you have fewer people there even able to like moderate what's happening on the platform. So that's the like other layer to that.
0: Right. Wow. Now, there at some point, Cheryl Sandberg and uh, coordinated with your group to do some kind of civil rights audit.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And uh, when did that happen? And what was it?
3: So that was, I'm, I'm definitely going to get my time mixed up because it feels like <laughs> dog, okay. it feels like dog years. So I'll say like three yeah, years, but it feels like 10 years. Yeah. But um, we, around the time of the Zuckerberg hearings, whenever that was, we had already, um, five years ago, actually, we, we sent a letter um, to Facebook. It was us um then called C- Center for Media Justice um, and Some of Us, and this uh, we called on them to do a civil rights audit. And uh, that was something that was actually modeled off of Airbnb. Um, Color of Change and other groups had worked with Airbnb um, before that to, to deal with discrimination on their platform. And they put forward this sort of like unprecedented model of doing a civil rights audit to really look across all all like sort of planks at what are the issues and failures. And they built civil rights infrastructure that still exists there to deal with bias. And so we took that model and attempted to apply it to Facebook. And again, at first they said, no, Um, then, you know, Cambridge Analytica happens. They get called in for testimony. Uh, we reached, we reached out to Senator Booker amongst others and asked that, asked him to press on the civil rights audit. He did. He got Mark Zuckerberg on record saying they would do it. And so then they brought in, um, You know, an outside team because part of part of the audit has to involve an external mechanism, right? Otherwise, it's not real. Um, And so they've released like uh, they're slated to release later this summer a third report based on some of the changes that they made. And I do have to say, they have made. Several important changes. Like, I don't even know what we'd be dealing with if they hadn't made some of those changes. But the reality is that, um, you know, when civil rights or social justice groups deal with corporations, corporations always give a little less than they're capable of giving. And in this instance, when you have a platform that has more adherence than Christianity, like billions of people on their platform, um, and they are tampering with democracy in a number of different countries, like, we're just talking US contexts, but like, We've seen what they've done with Myanmar. We've seen what they've done in India, Brazil, other places. Um, the fact that they have not put enough resources to actually getting that done and the fact that they've declined to put a, a civil rights infrastructure in their like executive suite or on their board, I think really caught, but, but have like put in folks that have done everything they could to block that, um, I think shows you what their intentions really are.
0: Right. Do you think that this is all flows directly from Mark Zuckerberg himself and his, you know, personal, you know, vision of what he, you know, how he values this, frankly, you know, I mean, is this flowing from him?
3: Um, you know, I think yes and no. I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. I manage a team of like 13 and do I know everything that's happening with all of those people? No. So can I imagine that Mark Zuckerberg knows everything that's going on? Not necessarily. I do know that a lot of Silicon Valley is built on Ayn Rand principles, and he is no different. Um, These principles of objectivism, um, which are more geared towards, um, you know, rejecting regulation um, allowing this sort of like free flow of chaos uh, with this idea that from that will become a natural democracy that place replaces our current systems. And he's also said that like Augustus is like one of his idols. So take that for what you will. So I do think that he operates with quite a bit of a, um, a, a, he doesn't operate with a wage shell justice analysis, let's put it that way. And then when you add, like, who's on his board, Peter Thiel, when you look at the fact that they've had a purge of black members from their board, who have left for various reasons, um, when you look at the fact that um, They um, have someone in Joel Kaplan and Nick Clegg who are very much uh, so like cognizant of of preserving the legacy of President Trump and and right wing media and all of these things, that that comes at the cost of basic civil rights for everyone. I think there's a lot of layers to bad decision makers. Um, And then the last thing I'll say, though, is that the problem is that with Mark Zuckerberg, he owns so many shares of the board, he's chairman of the board, and he's CEO, right? So who's going to fire right. him? Who's going to hold him accountable? No one. So under that circumstance where, no, you know, he doesn't have to be held accountable, and then he's surrounded by those folks, it's really hard to get change outside of re- government regulation.
0: Right. Um, I'm I'm thinking about this, you and I are talking about policy, we're talking about things going on the corporate level in Silicon Valley. We're talking about the president of the United States. But I'm on Facebook. And, you know, occasionally there'll be these sort of, uh, you know, calls to get off of Facebook, to uh-huh. disengage. <laughs> should, should I get off of Facebook?
3: I mean, you know, I, I, it doesn't, it probably, I don't know, your life might, b- might be made better. Um, yeah. Certainly I, I use it less, but then I use Instagram and WhatsApp, which is also owned by Facebook. So it's like, you know, right. what does it matter? But I'll say this, like, I think one, when you look at um, uh, something that's the size of um, Facebook, I don't know how many countries in the world have 2 billion people, but like, yeah how many people would you actually need to have an access from facebook for it to matter to them financially or otherwise that's probably right. more people than working that it's certainly more people that will go out and vote in november i'll tell you that much but um right. you know even putting that to the side th- what they have amassed in terms of like data control um and and in terms of like how they've been able to access people and information it doesn't even matter like my mom she's on facebook more than i am my dad Never had a Facebook um, account. Still calls it the Facebook. He (laughs) has the data footprint that's been accumulated, um, regardless of that. And so, you know, you can you can leave. And also, it's a privileged standpoint because there's a lot of ways in which Facebook has become so ubiquitous that you can't even access certain content without like accessing it through Facebook, or Facebook is in schools. And so like, really, that's why we need regulation, because it it doesn't matter if you turn it off, it doesn't turn you off.
0: Right, that's a very good point. And I'm always, you know, the other thing is that in terms of spreading information that is accurate, and that you want to be known, it's also remains a central hub for most people. And um, I'm thinking, right now specifically about uh, this upcoming election. And, uh, you know, Facebook is going to be kind of a battleground uh, in as much as, you know, your other media outlets are for how this election is going to be understood. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm thinking specifically about this vote by mail issue. Uh Um, you know there's the president he's that tweet goes out Facebook does nothing about it and it cascades down through the Facebook system and you know people read that and there's going to be some chunk of people that take it um, as you know de facto truth right Uh that there's something suspicious about mail-in voting that somehow Uh there's something not right about it right which you and I both know that underlying that is a it's barely a subtext. It's the text. It's like, this is about, uh, repressing, um, you know, minority votes and trying to repress democratic votes. And so, um, on that issue to shift for a moment, um, color, uh, color of change is also focused on, on this issue, right?
3: Yes. We have advocated for vote by mail and we continue to.
0: Yeah. And, you know, a lot. The last sort of major example that we all uh, that sort of brought a lot of this to light was the Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp uh, race for the governor of Georgia um, mm-hmm. two years ago. Um, has there been any um, progress made, and where where are we on that front in terms of going into twenty twenty? You know, uh, and trying to get everybody who can vote to vote because right now there's more energy than there's ever been. Yeah. Um uh, and, you know, this energy we're seeing on the streets is going to have to go to the ballot box and it has to happen in a fair way. So where do yeah. we stand with that in terms in, in, in from your point of view?
3: Yeah. Well, we hope it goes to the ballot box, right? Because as we as we know, it's just um, in terms of what we found out about 2016, it's just uh, what is talked about publicly is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the levels um, to which there was voter interference and and trying to like sh- turn people off from actually casting a vote. But putting that to the side, also, um, so there is is traction. I think there's less than there should be. We've seen a lot of states move forward, which is obviously part of what prompted um, this like childlike outburst from Trump. Um, I know I used to live in California. California's had vote by mail by year for years and um, it has has run pretty well. I live in Maryland, Baltimore now, and actually we're in the process of an election, and they're saying that I think something like 36 percent, I can't remember the number of um, ballots that they have coming in, are first-time voters. So we know as a country that if we value democracy and we value free speech and free thought and engagement, that it should be our priority to make sure that everybody in our country is able to participate in our democracy that is eligible. And we also know that, um, you know, that this sort of myth of voter fraud, Hey, like less than, I don't know if it's like half the country votes. Like I actually wish more people cared about fixing the election, but the truth of the matter is that we don't, that like, that's not happening. However, What we have been pushing for and advocating for in Congress and where we have seen traction is federal vote by mail legislation. And so uh, we would like to see that passed. We've seen a number of states um, put that on the books, at least temporarily, because, you know, COVID is not going anywhere. We still don't have a vaccine. Like, it's still not safe Mm -hmm. for people to be out in large groups, you know, voting at this time. And so um, we feel you know optimistic that something can happen the problem is when when voting when the right to vote becomes um, a bipartisan issue and the messaging from one party is that you don't deserve a right to participate in our democracy and then that becomes you know the messaging of that platform um, that really like sort of handcuffs our ability to uh, make sure we all can be heard in november regardless of where we stand right
0: right Um, And I did see there, I mean, there are like sort of twinkles of hope in uh, that like states like South Carolina Mm -hmm. uh, changed their um, position to allow vote by mail in uh, the primaries. So, you know, if we can kind of see more of that, because obviously even Republican states, uh, you know, don't want to not have votes, you know, or not have elections Um, and, uh, you know. This is something that we're going to be keeping our eye on here at Inside the Hive over over the summer, talking to different um, lawyers for the ACLU and the DNC and other organizations about where we stand with all of that. Um, This is a remarkable time that we're living in. And I I want to conclude by just asking, um, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Oh, what a question. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, right? Like these, these times have been super hard and I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm an introvert. Um, I like to stay home. I'd been traveling on the road a lot for work. So I think the first two weeks I was kind of like, oh, I'm living my best life now. Um, but but I mean, I think, you know, tensions have been high. Like this, this past weekend, actually my nephew who goes to college in Atlanta, um, there was video footage of, um, him being, um, he was at a protest in his car and the police repeatedly tased him, dragged him out of the car. i oh um, arrested him, like threw him, um, in a, in a cell. Like he, it was awful. And like, I found oh. out, you know, through the video. And I, I remember seeing this kid that, that, to me was still like a little kid. Cause the last time I'd seen him was years ago. He was like this really shy young kid that I helped write his like college essay. Um, it wouldn't hurt anybody. Like not that that matters, but like, you know, being attacked by the police this way, but like, this is a time where we're seeing so much pro- protest, so much frustration, um, so much civil unrest that's born of um, economic hardship, uh, police brutality, you know, health injustice, and I think now is the time that we really have to come together to be more aspirational about where we're going. And so, I'm, I'm, you know, to answer your question, like it, it feels hard, but it's also like, what else have we got to do? <laughs> we, we just got yeah. to knuckle down and do it, right?
0: Right. I, I have to say that I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, just because we're at a juncture where. Obvious change is needed and being called for from really from people from all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with Jim Mattis coming out this week uh, and being very frank, really about the divisions that have been sown up to this point and how those have to be mended, and that requires us to pay attention to this issue and everybody knows that has to happen. Now, whether it can happen and how it happens will be where the rubber hits the road. But the fact that we now have a blank slate, or at least a, you know, uh, we've hit a reset button here, and how we go forward is going to determine our destiny. And um, so for that, I'm glad that maybe something can change. And uh, I hope um, your organization is called Color of Change, and that's, uh, you guys are right in the center of it. So um, thank you for coming on this program and talking to us about it.
3: Yeah, thank you again for having me.
0: And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank our guests Brandy Collins-Dexter and Maya Wiley for coming on the program during this critical week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe. you can subscribe to this podcast at applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts and please leave a review while you're there. I'd like to thank my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast and we'll see you next week.